And here we are, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. We are back. My name is G Valentino Ball. I am a production, a director of uh, production and digital strategy over at Embrace Boston. And um, I have the pleasure of talking today for the Good Trouble podcast. I have the pleasure of talking to somebody who I who I affectionately call the RZA um, because when I met him, he was leading a group of a group of artists that pretty much had been taken took over the city and he is always i think at one point or another as long as i've known him he's been at the forefront of the arts and curating events and creating music um and bringing people together um for the entirety of, of our association. I can't really think of a time when this dude wasn't trying to connect people in the best possible way. And, and I think that it's super important to have a conversation with, with um, someone like our guest today, because in relation to elevating the city of Boston, elevating the lives of all people, but particularly of black people, I think that it's super important um, to talk about where the arts falls into that. And this is, there's no better person to have that discussion um, with than my guest for today, DJ Real P. How are you doing, brother? I'm blessed, brother. Thank you for having me. Man, I've, I was I was really trying to think about as we I was preparing for our conversation today, I was really trying to figure out when I first met you. Where, where we first met, all I know is, all I know is that Wow. I'll tell you what I I'll tell you how I got introduced to you. Um, famous nobodies, uh, Jimmy Choo's, and I kept hearing this about the song and hearing about the song, and I was like, and then the the girl that I heard it from, she's telling me like it's like it's like a hundred of them They're everywhere. <laughs> then I started doing my research and going online, and everybody it felt like everybody in the city had a famous nobody sweatshirt except for me at one point. Yeah, you got yours though eventually, right? No, I never got one. No, I'm like, yo, man, I'm about to bootleg one of those. So, so t- let's let's start at the beginning, man. I I think let's start about let's start talking about you as an artist before before we get to the the work that you're doing today that's still impacting people. Let's talk about when you got started, man. How what what kind of led you into the world of the arts and, and creating? Oh wow, I mean that's such a I, we, you got enough time we could be here forever uh, <laughs> I mean obviously I mean I grew up with five older brothers and my father's always been into the arts he was a saxophonist and a vinyl collector so I've always been intrigued with music I've always been surrounded by it uh, my brothers always all took their hands at rapping at some point you know how yeah. that goes uh, big Wu-Tang fans big like Keith Murray Craig Mack fans so I grew up on that on that side uh, but then my father was playing the Coltrane's, the Hugh Masakala's, the, mm. you know, African jazz. I was getting the R&B, the George Benson's from my mom, you know, so mm. it felt like a big melting pot. And we go to African parties, the Sukus playing, there's the traditional African music. So I was getting a lot. Um, and I think naturally, like I was just drawn to music, drawn to colors. When I heard music, it made me see colors. When I saw colors, it took me to a place. Uh, so it was just like this ever ending cycle of like feelings and nostalgia all the time where I felt like trapped in a good way. Um, so I wanted to be involved with it. 
And I really got into DJing 15 years old, Atlanta mm. Academy. Before that was writing raps with some of my my, my homie Alex. Shout out to Alex if he hears this. Uh, he's the music director right now. Well, the playback engineer for Janelle Monet. Uh, okay. Earth, Earth Gang and a couple other cats, uh, her, Summer Walker. But he was he was really the catalyst for me to get into rapping. Uh, we were the same age. Yeah, no, no. So my man Al, long-winded story, but he, my first song was Rock With. He produced that. Him and Moses. Moses used to be uh, the producer with City Slickers. Remember Moses? Yes, yes. Wow. So wait, wait, wait. So you knew they, you all went to, you all went to school together. So me and Alex went to school together. Alex knew Moses from church. Okay. So they were making beats together. And he used to always talk about me though. My, my man, Real Politics, he's the nicest dude because we had a band at school. We had a band at Latin Academy. Mm. I was the lead vocalist, the lead rapper. Alex was the keyboardist. My man, Jonathan, who's the GM over at uh, MGM Fenway now. He's a, no, he's a VIP, whatever manager, whatever. Uh -huh. But he's a guitarist. My man Scritch was on the drum. So we had a full, like, we were like the baby roots. That's how we were inspired by them. Mm -hmm. um, so we were doing shows at school, doing shows around the city, Talent Nights, Youth Connection, you know, Youth Summit, all that. Like, we did all of that. Um, and then it was always like, yo, y'all don't have any, like, real material. It was like we were using, play. they were playing back industry beats, I was reciting the industry um, um, hooks, but then writing my own verses. So it was okay. like a cover, but it wasn't a cover. It was my verses, but their hooks, their beats, but it was live. Uh, but it was like, yo, we needed something to perform. So we made rock with. I, I wish I could find that. I, I'm going to find it for you. Uh, Bro, listen, Rob might have that because I know he I keeps everything. Yeah, he might have that. So Rockwood was made, and that's that was my first real introduction into like being in the studio, and like, oh, this is a process. Like, oh, I have to layer this vocal. I have to like do a couple takes, and like, I have to decide if I put a fet. Like, so that was my first introduction to that, and I loved it. Fell in love with it, um, and then I figured out early on that how that played into DJing, like early on into my DJ career. Um, because so where I, did the DJing part come in? Because the I a lot of times you hear about people becoming artists and the creativity, but where does it segue into because you know that like that's almost that's almost a very almost old school approach. Because I when I was coming up, you would have kids who would break dance and they would write graffiti and they would rap, and, right. you know, and they would DJ. Yeah, I mean, I think I was fascinated with it all. Um, I couldn't break, I couldn't dance to save my life. So that wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. Um, naturally rapping just with my brothers. So I was into that, but I think what segued into DJing was really being around the reggae culture. Um, mm. cause like simultaneously, like I'm living all these like parallel musical lives, you know, I'm at home, I'm hearing one thing when my brother's hearing one thing, I'm at school, I'm writing raps, doing another thing. Um, now I'm like hanging with my friends who are from Trini and Jamaica and I'm seeing like clashes and um, videos of Sting and all Bounty Killer on stage. I'm like, this is mm. crazy. <laughs> so naturally I got involved because I was already intrigued with vinyls and turntables. You know, my Trini crew, Darnell, Ray Vaughn, them cats, 
uh, they were already DJing. They were already in that lane. So it was like, I was just interested. And mm -hmm. I remember tagging along with them a few times and like, oh, they're controlling the crowd. Oh, I could be good at this. Like, I could count beats. This is nothing. Like, I'm musically inclined. Like, I already mm -hmm. felt like, I, I already felt like I was the best rapper. So it's like, I could be the best at this too. Um, see, it's interesting though, because the thing that you do as a rapper, and we've had this discussion all the time, you know where I'm going with this. The thing that you do as a rapper, using your voice to control the space, now you're using the music and your voice to control the space. Yes. Like, yes. I, you know me, I, I'm always a fan of, like, I'm a big fan of mixtapes. So it's like the Kid Capri's, the, the you know, the the Chubby Chubs, my, my guy. All like All of that was happening all at the same time. So yes. I think it was like a perfect timing, perfect storm. Because I was consuming these DJ Clue, DJ Envy, mm. Funk Flex, Chub mixtapes, but I was also consuming the Stone Love, the Bass Odyssey mixtapes. Absolutely. Ashes, all of that. And I was consuming the jazz, the soul music. So, like, I was always that different DJ for off rip. Like, when mm. I started DJing and I was really in the reggae scene, I was the one coming and playing the the singing sweet, you know, reggae joint over the R&B joint. Like, cause mm -hmm. I bought that exclusively at Taurus Records and I picked that out, hand picked that. And I'm like, wait till I play that, you know? And it was different in the reggae world. It was always like, they knew I wasn't Jamaican. They knew I wasn't Trini. They're like, what is this dude? And why is he playing like hip hop, but reggae joints too, you know, it was always different. So. I think I pride myself on that. And it was like, uh, it was a fun time. It taught me a lot about what I liked, what I didn't like, mm -hmm. uh, kind of my boundaries musically. Uh, I don't know. I'm but that care, but it's funny because that's, huh? I said, I'm going off on a tangent. So no, stop. no, no. That's what we're here for. We're here to have a conversation, but that also speaks to me about the importance of like that, all those building blocks, like the fact that you were all these different spaces, it there's very it's very easy to see the direct line between that, between you then going on and building famous nobodies, which we'll talk about in a second, and mm -hmm. then getting to the point where you have Silk, which is hands down the most popular party in the city, and is one of the most notable parties. And the crazy part about it is just when I when I look and see who goes through Silk. It is, it's amazing to me. It feels like, we're, it feels like, it feels yeah. like the city that I feel like I've always wanted us to be and yeah. to be in because yeah. I, we could, I could point to not just an R&B party, but this kind of R&B party where these, where there's this intersection of all these different parts of the city. This cats who yeah. are, are who, <laughs> like, there is the cold, all different types of energy, but like, so for you, like, and, and and I hear your imprint. I hear because I, you know, we talk all the time. I hear your imprint on the party. Like I hear your the the quirky record that nobody may have may have thought to play in that spot. I hear it when I when I go in there, mm -hmm. and it's a different experience than anything else. Like, and, and it's not even it's not even you hearing it because I'm playing it, and I think, I think when I book DJs and I love this, they mm. see Silk in such a light 
where they feel like they need to now study and do their research and get ready to be at Silk. You know what I'm saying? So we get those moments where there's that obscure record or that record that you love so much that you haven't heard from somebody else playing other than Real P. Mm. But it's like that we've now created that kind of that uh, genre branding per se of the part. It's, it's, it's like an energy and a style. It's almost, it it's reminds style, me, yeah. it reminds me of the tunnel in that, yep. like if you listen to, if you ever listen to um, Cypher Sounds talk about the way the tunnel was formatted in in like his early set, then Big Cap would come on and then Funk Flex would close it out. Like, but there was, he knew what he had to do as opening DJ. So he played R&B, he played mixtapes. Like he would bring in a DAT recorder and play songs off of mixtapes. He would play album cuts and leave that space so that when Cap came on and did the reggae, that set up um, Flex at the end of the night. And it's the same thing that you're doing with your party without those strict boundaries, but people are knowing, okay, this is the kind of energy, like the record that would probably clear the dance floor somewhere else is going to be the one that erupts the crowd here. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. That's, that's very true. <laughs> it's, but it's, it's real. Like, and it's, it, as I hear you talk about your journey, I also think about all those different audiences that have built with you in all those spaces. And when I go to Silk, I feel like all those people are there. Absolutely. And it and it even extends. And it's like my musical palette has been influenced by so much, you know, of what I just talked about. But also when I hit college now, you know, mm -hmm. I ended up going to two different colleges. You know, I was at, I was in Western Mass. So I interfaced with a lot of cats from New York and from Florida, came up to play football. So I got a taste of that. And then I ended up going to Salem State where it's next to Lynn and Swamp Scott. Now I'm in a Spanish vibe. Now mm. I'm learning all the bachata, all the salsa, all, you know what I'm saying? The reggaeton, you know? And now it's just like, I'm getting so much and I'm able to like add this to my belt now. Now it's not weird if I'm jumping around from, uh, for, excuse my language, uh, bachata record to a uh, trap record, but seamlessly, it's not off brand for me. You know what I'm saying? So. No. I'm, I'm appreciative of that and I'm I'm glad that I've been able to like be on this musical journey organically. Well, there's one part of that journey that I wanted to talk to you about, and it kind of is the intersection of some of the things that we do at Embrace Boston, is how difficult has it been for you as an artist and with with all this broad palette of experience and ability to grow within the city and like tap into resources and find people who are even willing to support you to grow to that point. Because like, you know, like there's different places where like for a while you could, you know, some people couldn't play downtown. You, could, you couldn't play certain music in certain spaces and it, it's all that goes on. How difficult was that for you as part of your journey? I mean, extremely difficult. I mean, yeah, it's been 10 plus years, like throwing parties, curating spaces, so, you know, there's been those negative interactions with GMs, owners, you know, people closing doors, people not believing in the process. And some of it is rightfully so. Like I say all the time, like I threw my first real party. Uh, well, that was at Good Life. But like my first party that I promoted by myself was at Sticks Lounge on Stanhope Street. Do you remember that? 35 Stanhope Street? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Friendly, it's a friendly toast right now. Red Lantern's right next door to it. Okay, I know exactly what you're talking about. All little lounge spot. And 
you know, the owner rightfully so told me never to come back there because I threw a party and I didn't manage it properly. I didn't manage the music. I didn't manage the people and a big brawl broke out. And that was my first party. And it was like, at that moment, like real P could have gave up like, nah, this ain't for me. You know what I'm saying? After talking to the owner the next day and him like, don't ever come to my establishment. You know, I could have got discouraged, but it was like, nah, I pushed through that. And I think a lot of the times, like I go back to that moment when I get discouraged, like, mm. nah, nah, like that was your first party fam. Like <laughs> if, you know, if you could push through that, you could push through a lot more of this stuff. So I think for me, I keep my, I keep a close network of people that I like to work with and it works for me. Um, I don't say yes to everything. So it's not, I don't feel like I'm just like out there, out there. And it's like, everyone knows me because when people think they know you, they start to assume things about you. Um, so I try to like stay with my people, stay with people I'm comfortable with, but also, you know, extend my arms to pull people up or pull people side by side if I believe in them and if I, you know, see their vision. Mm. How, but how important was it or when did it become important for you to not just be on stage, but to create the stage? Because you talked about that being your first party and I, and I'm dying to know what record you played that all, that made all hell break loose. I don't even, I wasn't <laughs> even DJing at that time. I was DJing obviously, but I mean like I, at that time when the fight broke out, I was like at the bar. <laughs> Who did I book to DJ? I think it was 3J. Oh, no. I remember booking DJs forever. But um, tell me your first question again. I'm sorry. I was saying, what was it, what was it that made you... Because you made a transformation from being behind the turntables to being on the mic. What made you decide, okay, I've done this piece of it, but in order for this to go right, I need to throw the party. I need to create the event, the, the space and... And 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 how important was it for you to create those spaces for people? Um, so early on, I was doing that, and I think that was a natural thing for me. Like I was always a part of the group or the person throwing the party, you know, outside of when you're getting booked for a club night or whatever the case is. But like that was a natural thing for me. It was weird for me to wait around to get booked. It was like, nah, we going to throw something and we going <laughs> to make money. So that's always been that even since high school, like throwing stuff at Freedom House and the Roxbury Y and the Strand, you know, Club uh, Club 61, 61 Columbia Road. Like we're all we were always creators and conveners. Uh, so I think that was a natural progression, you know, coming into it. And we had legs to stand on because we understood how to communicate and kind of speak that language in a sense. Mm. We all went to school. So we had some like infrastructure there um, in terms of business minded. Uh, so it was a natural progression and it was always important like to create that space for other cats. You know, like you said, like when, when did I figure out it was time to like step from behind the turntables to the background i think it was, that duality has been there it's just now now it's more magnified you know i'm older more people are taking notice of it you know i've i've i won't say i've perfected it but you know i've been in the game a little bit so i know what not to do what to do um so not much has changed it's just amplified a little bit more you know it's magnified um 
if that but with that that magnification you've you've taken it to a whole new level you know this past I, I feel like this past year and and you know it was great that we're having this conversation because we're actually headed towards um what is it the anniversary of you being inside of big night live this is like yeah, your first, yeah. that's so cool it, it, we're it's coming at this month right mm-hmm so you you've done all those. You went with over from over easy to doing live shows to all that, and you kicked off Silk. Tell us a, tell us about Silk and kind of the impact of of this party. Yeah, so Silk is, you know, I don't want to use the term biggest, but I think it's the biggest R and B party in the city, and you know, the most impactful, the most musically driven. Um, and I think, you know, R&B is this timeless genre that just lives forever. Like it's lived through blues, soul music. Like you can call that early stuff R&B, you know? So like, Mm. I think it's one of those things that hits our hearts. We feel it. It makes us party. It makes us sing. It makes us emotional. It makes us all of that. So I wanted to to be able to evoke that and and create a space that where people can feel vulnerable and but be cool about it like you could mm-hmm. be a thug and be singing Keisha Cole or be singing some Anita Baker and all of that and no one's gonna look at you like why is he singing like that no they're gonna feel you like they're gonna look at you weird if you're not singing like that mm-hmm. also like I wanted to be able to create that in response to not to say there's anything wrong with nightclubs or downtown nightclubs. It was just, there was no emotion there. There was no exchange of energy there. It was just, it was very transactional. It was like, come here, spend your money at the bar, listen to these songs on repeat and leave and come do it again next week. Mm-hmm. There was no, nothing you, it, it didn't feed you um, energy wise or musically. So that was important for me to do that. And I think we, started that a lot with over easy uh we learned how to to mold that model and massage that model into a way that the pull-up works with you know new era new england and all of that um and i think this is like the the marriage of that on the r&b side you know because we're doing some of the performance stuff we're doing some of the live music stuff but it's very much uh party with different activations within the party so it's kind of like all the, the three kind of staple things that I've done in my career um, in terms of parties or in terms of events. It's like I'm trying it all in this one uh, little nugget of silk. Yeah, but what what you're doing with it and why it even it, it's even on the radar for me and I think for a lot of people is it's it's impactful beyond just being a party because I feel like you've created a community around it. You created an energy around it that goes beyond just a, a place for people to go dance. It, it, and like you said, it's not the transactional nature that you feel in, in a lot of other spaces. It feels like, you know, it feels different and feels special. How intentional was that for you to kind of create that air for uh, for folks? Extremely, extremely. I think, I think when you come into a space and you see different people but they're similar to you, like Silk, mm-hmm. let me back up. So like Silk is great because like, you're going to come in there and you're going to see your 50 year old auntie and you'll see the 21 year old 
who goes to Harvard and you'll see the city councilor and you'll see a Celtics player and the Patriots player. So it's like all of these people from different walks who are different, but we all have this commonality, whether it be uh, us being black or brown or just us being having our love for R&B and having our love for good energy. Um, so I think Silk is unique in that way where people trust the brand enough <clears throat> that they're going to come, you know, no matter what. Like sometimes when you go to club night, it's like, who's DJing? Who's, <laughs> mm-hmm. is it? Like, what's this, what, what's, what's, what kind of night is it? It's like, now it's like, Oh, it's silk. Oh, we going. It's it's trusted. It's there. It doesn't matter who's DJing. Mm. Doesn't matter what it is. Uh, so that was very intentional, and it was very that was a mission of mine for the for the brand to to represent something bigger than real P. Um, I joke all the time, and it's real, but it's it's calmed down a lot that I get invited out to to my party. So like so much. <laughs> it's like. First, it was a little annoying. Like, why are you telling me about Silk? Like, you don't know I that's mine? Like, you don't know that for real? But I had to really sit back and think about it. And it's like, that's really a tip of the cap to me and to the team as if we built a brand so big and so important that it's like people don't even see me on stage. Like, it don't even matter. Like, it's about mm. Silk to them. It's about the good time and the good R&B music they're hearing. And it's like, if I'm a smart businessman, if I'm a, a person, a, a person of the people, that shouldn't bother me. You know what I'm saying? So I've learned to like let that not bother me. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think that the other part of it and why that 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 happens, why people are inviting you to it. One, people are trying to spread something that they believe in that they that they trust, but that it also speaks to you not having the ego first. Um, or the 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 me 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 kind of approach to doing this because there's you know there's definitely a lot of entities in Boston and around the country that would have had themselves in every single picture they would have like it would have been all about you and like I know the party started off with a hundred people at the W right and then it grew yeah, yeah, yeah. It grew. Oh, you need, oh, you need the history, huh? You need yeah, I was going to say it grew from that. And tell us the history. Let me, I don't want to tell the history. You tell the history. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, it really started, and it's a shout to my boy, Bron Dapper, um, one of the coldest DJs that I've ever heard in my life. Bron is a beast. He is, he's a monster. Bron connected me at the W. I was a resident for a while in the lounge, and the lobby lounge at the W. Uh, and I used to always do these R&B sets there. And it's like, it became kind of popular. Like there will be a line to get into the W on Friday, on first Fridays of every month. They're like real peace there. So, you know, the GM started taking notice, like what's up with this? Every time this dude is here, like it's a good time. Like, and it's real R&B-ish. It's real cool, real vibey. Uh, so Braun came to me, he was like, yo, would you be interested in throwing an R&B party in the gallery? And I'm like, absolutely. I've been wanting to do that. You know what I'm saying? Because I've been already doing my club circuit at the venues the icons the this and that and you know you can't play r&b there like you could play for the last five minutes uh but you know it's trap heavy it's dance hall heavy it's top 40 heavy so i took this as an opportunity to create a space to play joints that i love for people that love the same joints like i can come in here and play 
uh Dave Hollister all night. Like that's ill. Like <laughs> people love it. They're gonna they're not gonna bat an eye at this Carl Thomas. Like, where are we gonna play that? Um, so we threw the first one that was 2018 in September. Um, it went up, it was fire. Like there was a line outside, it was so unexpected. Like I remember going to the florist shop buying mad roses. Cause I wanted to make sure every person got a rose when they walked in Wanted to make sure there was flower petals everywhere. Like I was big on making sure when they walked in, they felt like they've never been in this space, whether they've been in the W before or not. Uh, so I think it worked, obviously. Um, <laughs> we Seems stayed, like it worked. Seems like yeah, it worked. Yeah, you know, we stayed there after that year. 2019, I brought on Baby Indiglo. That's when she came on after I booked her for a party at the W. I love the energy she brought. I love the people she brought. And it seemed like a perfect, like, blend, you know, mm -hmm. and seem off. They didn't seem thrown off by, you know, me playing the old joints. And then, you know, some of the older crowd didn't seem thrown off by her playing the new Summer Walker and the new LMA. So it was like, mm -hmm. oh, it worked. Um, so I brought her on. And then, you know, the world stopped pandemic time. Um, and that was that was challenging because it was like we just started really going crazy. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, like you just got in your groove. It got in our groove. Like we got we had the W believing in us, like, you know, giving us deals now at the bar. It's like, OK, like now we talking, now we doing business. Um, and then it stopped. Um, so we just had to stay busy during that. Did a lot of IG lives. That's when I started doing Sundays are for Soul, which was really like sample heavy, sample focused every Sunday at three. Um, I would dig into my sample bag, whether it be soul music, hip hop, anything like. So it was a lot of music education, but it was done tastefully. It wasn't corny. You know, now you see on IG, everyone does samples. It's like sample everything now on IG, um, which is cool. Uh, but it wasn't we done. We need to bring that back. We need to bring that back. We need to bring that back and do it properly. Um, so I think that that definitely helped Silk. We I, Even though I wasn't doing a lot of Silk branded things over quarantine, I think me stepping away from that and letting it just breathe and let people like, damn, that R&B party was dope. Like I, And me doing something else and then showing the versatility, showing the... I mean, I guess humility in a sense of like, we ain't gonna let this stop us. Like, you know, I was supporting businesses like Derealist got broken in. I did a couple IG lives and asked for tips and gave it to Derealist, you know? And it's like, that wasn't no marketing scheme. I wanted to do that for my man. But I think that type of authenticity, that type of stuff that resonates with people, you know, and they remember that subconsciously. So it's like, when we came back from the pandemic, you know, that opened back up. It was like, do we go back to the W? And that's when I brought Rob on. It's like, nah, we got to level up. <laughs> we got to level up. So we call Renato over at La Fabrica. You know, Renato's always been the supporter of Black black creators, Black curators over there, him and Dennis. Um, and, you know, we came and met with Renato, like, we're we going to do an R&B party, all R&B. He's like, all R&B. He's like back here in the nightclub. Like, yes, all trust me, all. He did not trust it at all. <laughs> at all. And, you know, we did advanced tickets because he was nervous about it. He wanted to make sure like we were going to sell tickets. 
Uh, we released tickets, and I think three days after releasing, we sold out 400, 410, 410 tickets. And it was like, oh. I told oh, okay. you so. <laughs> I was like, make sure you got all your staff at the bar. Make sure we got so. You know, and love to La Fabrica over in Cambridge. If you've never been there, go there. Uh, but love to them for supporting it straight out the pandemic, you know, because they was understaffed. You know, they were taking a risk. They were taking a flyer on us. You know, it was a new thing for them. Their space is really Latin driven, salsa parties, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so shout out to them. And that really allowed us to hone in on the brand and really, you know, talk to our consumers directly, build our mailing lists mm-hmm. and build our social media presence, really build our content. Um, and then we were able to, you know, finagle the relationships properly. Uh, me and Rob were a little strategic on that end uh, to how to make that happen. So we finagled those relationships and, and you know, had Big Night reach out to us and, you know, offer us a, a date over there. and. The rest is history, you know. Well, let's talk about that history. Let's not just gloss over that. Number <laughs> one, see, this is the beauty of us having this conversation. One, um, typically in in downtown spaces or corporate run spaces or the larger spaces in town, it's been very difficult for Black creators and curators to kind of exist and survive in those spaces. So, for you to take a party from a hundred person lounge and build it to twenty five hundred people. Which is 1800, 1800. I'm sorry, 1800, 1800, 1800, 1800. But we, nope, but we gotta, you, when you did the first All the Fields, at which you behind the behind tech too. So we yeah, can give you a little credit my, for that's that. My brain, that's my brainchild, but we, gonna, we ain't gonna talk about that. But so right. we can give you a little <laughs> bit of credit for that too. But my point is to build from that, to, to build to a venue of that size, and it be an ongoing situation, you know. Me being, you know, I'm significantly older than you, um, but but I've seen when we've had those big spaces before, when when folks were doing Avalon, when folks were doing Royale, and in the the iterations before then, and you know they rocked it for a little while, but then they ended up getting shut down, and the relationships with the like it seems that you've kind of figured out a way to move past that, and that's been a difficulty that a lot of of black folks have have kind of confronted and had a problem with yeah i mean i will say some of it i won't call it luck but some of it is luck too luck of the draw Mm -hmm. timing um but a lot of it is i mean there's this word again authenticity like really being yourself i think me and rob do a good job at like being unapologetically black but not being disrespectful but mm-hmm. not being hard to work with, being easy to work, being flexible, being accountable, you know, like acknowledging, like if something happens at the night, acknowledging that, you know, it might have happened because we did something wrong and, you know, and bouncing that off. And I think, you know, Big Night, their businessman at the end of the day is a good product. Um, so they're making good money off, obviously, but I think they believe in Silk, but more importantly, they believe in us as like men. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like we we say what we're gonna do, they say what they're gonna do, and it happens. Um, and I think a lot of times there's this sneakiness in a relationship when it comes to this business, when you're mm-hmm. working with a GM or an owner, 
it always feels like they're trying to get one up on you, whether it be the bar guarantee or whether it be, you know, let me see the write up for the door, like how much people came in. Or It always feels like there's this non-transparency. And I don't think we felt that yet. Um, and I won't say we're going to feel that. Um, so I think that has allowed us to really build a relationship and really develop kind of we can we can sit back and, and develop strategic thinking now it doesn't feel like we're like every month like oh my god what are we going to do it's like now we can actually project out and think and and make sure the brand doesn't fizzle out so it doesn't turn into you know the avalons or the royales where mm-hmm. now it fizzles away and the people aren't showing up and now there's no financial um uh financial reason for big night to be even be interested anymore or no no brand for them to even you know support you know what i'm saying so i think it's authenticity being yourself i say to rob all the time and i'm big on this like the same way we can do 2000 people today we can do 25 people next month you know what i'm saying so let's not take it for granted and you know, and I, I know he doesn't, and I, I don't ever take like the people coming and showing out, spending their money, taking their time to come there, finding parking. You know, it could be a hassle, and you know, and sometimes maybe they don't like the guest DJ, or they don't like this, or they had a bad interaction at the door. There could be some of that negative nuances. So I never take it for granted. I always show love. I'm always walking around, making sure I'm dapping everybody. If I know you, giving up, thank you for coming. And I think those little small things are extremely important. And a lot of times, like promoters or curators or hosts, forget that aspect um, and goes a long way. Yeah, but I know that for you, that authenticity is super important. But it's interesting to me that you've created what feels like something that's almost normal in every other city. How how important is it for you to be doing what you're doing here in Boston? And what do you think the long-term impact of that is? Do you feel like this is the new Boston? This is the new way things are moving? Or do you feel like it's part of a, a changing of the guard and how the and how the city thinks of black entertainment and black curation? Do you you know yeah. what do you think about that? There was a lot of questions there, but I'm yeah. sorry, I, I'm good. I, I, throw, <laughs> I, I throw it all at you at one time. A lot of questions there. I mean, first off, I think the city is obviously, especially with the new hire of this nightlife person, um, and kind of the focus on the liquor licenses and all that. There's a focus on, you know, making sure there's this inclusion and there's this real entertainment for black and brown people. It's not like where, um. Um, trying to fit in into they want they don't want us to just fit into Faneuil Hall bars or whatever. Like they mm-hmm. for us. Um hold on, this kid is about I mean I can hear my kid at the door. But go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say I know I I've actually um the new night czar that you were that you were addressing. Um I know I know her, uh Kareen Reynolds and oh. super super intelligent sharp and just focused i think that to me it's almost like when i look when i look at the the wood administration in some cases it's almost like watching your favorite sports team start picking up like Stacking like an ill free agent like oh that's who you got playing forward for you now oh this is gonna yeah. be lit so i i like i'm super i'm super um inspired and hopeful 
with her coming on board in, in that role. And I think that good things are going to happen for the C. But I was going to say for you, you've traveled all around. Like, what do you think yeah. it feels like for the for the city? Yeah, so to answer your question, I mean, yeah, it feels like it is a it is a new day. I feel, come on, kid, come on. My, my son's right here. Say what's up. Hi. You can and, say hi. And he just peed on himself, so. Oh, man, get it together, brother. Um, you, need to take, you need to take a couple seconds? I need, like, one minute. Yeah. Go ahead, man, do your thing. Get my man right. There we go. So we were t- we were talking about the the importance of kind of the changes that are happening here in Boston. And, you know, what do you think about some of the things that you're seeing as a curator and a person that brings people together, you know, as part of your business, do you think that Boston's kind of getting into a better place? Yeah, I think, you know, clearly there's a new focus on it. I think, you know, like you said, you know, we've all, we've all traveled to different cities and the way like Silk and some of these other curated branded parties have been popping up and being kind of ran has this kind of LA, New York feel to it, um, where it's like, everyone's welcome. Dress code is not a big deal. Um, you know, we're trying to get celebrities in there, not to be a host, but just to be there and party with the people. Like there's a different um, kind of feel to things. And I think it obviously it's a, it's a new day and it's a, it's a, it's a retention thing. You know, we want to make sure we're, we're keeping us successful black and brown people or even the unsuccessful ones um, <laughs> uh, you know spending our money and having a good time it is a big difference from what it used to be um you know i talked about dress code that's one major thing i think that doesn't get talked about a lot where it's like we used to you know wear pointy dress shoes with jeans and have to tuck in our collared polo shirt mm. you know, <laughs> Those were those were that was nasty business, fam. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like you couldn't even get your swag off. So like I was big on that early on. Like any of my parties, like if a venue was like you have to have a dress code, I'm straight. Like that's a deal breaker for me. Um and I feel like a lot of venues have caught, I'm not taking responsibility for that, but a lot of venues have now caught on. It's not it's not so strict of a dress code. You know, they still may say no hats, but again, for me, like, how are you going to tell me I can't put this hat on? Like this hat is fire. <laughs> it is part of the fit. Part of my fit, God. Like, <laughs> how are you telling me I can't do that? Like, what is my hat? Um, So even that like small change shows that there's a new day. Cause I mean, those dress codes, if we talk about it, if we being frank, you know, it's prejudice, it's racist. Mm-hmm. It's leaning towards the black, the clothing that black people wear, you know, you know, those were all the restricted cloth items of clothing. So I think that change alone says a lot. Um, the change about, you know, I can't count on my hands how many times a promoter or manager told me I can't play hip hop at this club or I can't, you know, mm-hmm. play this certain genre where at a certain time I need to relax it down. Like, what does that mean? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> What does that mean? Are we we're partying? Do you want us to party throughout, or do you want us to stop at a certain time? Like, what's the what's the question? Um, so music and even that is racist. It's so intrinsically racist. Don't play the ooga booga music that's going to get the Negroes too excited. That's basically what he was. He might as well have just said that to you. No, and it doesn't even mean don't play hip hop. 
that means don't play soca. That means don't don't play nothing upbeat that's black. If it ain't pop music, something that you know people clearly are smiling to and singing mm-hmm. along to, then it ain't for it ain't good. So it's definitely a new day. It's a new focus. I'm glad to be a part of it. Um, I think you know there are some people who are taking advantage of it in a bad way. Um, and when I say that, I don't, I don't mean to put anybody on the spot, but just like in terms of like now access is becoming more prevalent in the city in terms of venues. Like mm-hmm. I think, you know, a lot of venues are now realizing, oh, we need these black and brown culture creators. Like <laughs> we, we're not going to make it so hard for them or so expensive for them to to rent this space out. Uh, but I think with that happening, sometimes you let in a little bit too many of the bad apples or the non-true authentic curators mm-hmm. you know, were just doing it for the quick buck or doing it because they saw, oh, the R&B party works here, so let's throw one here, or or an Afro beat party works here, so let's throw, you know. Um, so, I mean, that's happened since the beginning of the time, but I think it's a lot more magnified, a little bit more in the city just because access is a lot more easier to come by. But it's funny because I think that, I think that that's a, it's, there's always been two types of people who curate and, um, and create part and create, you know, experiences. There've been the people who have, um, curated and built a community, which like a lot of what, what happens is silk reminds me of like house music. It's like really very much like, house music vibes like that community vibe of what you see with house heads right um and then there's the people who are just trying to um herd in people they're trying to just get bodies in the door and and kind of you know like you said just come in spend your money and get out mm-hmm. oh you guys like r&b this week okay come in here get in get out mm-hmm. um and i think with the reason that you're successful is one i think you have a a respect for the people that come that come and patronize with you but then also, it's it's also you as a person and how it fits into. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to make it seem like it's almost this big political statement, but it's also a part of where this fits in the well being of us as, as black people and surviving in America, and mm-hmm. and 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 the, then by extension of that, all people. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because you know they uh, there's that line. I, and I always remember this line and it, it just sticks with me all the time um, from V for Vendetta. The um, the guy who wrote it was a, is, is a guy named Alan Moore. And the line that, that V says um, in the movie is like a revolution without dancing is not a, a revolution worth having. And I know a lot of times people get caught up and like, oh, they just, people just want to go sing and dance, but you need that opportunity to connect with people to recharge your batteries before you get into the fight. Um, and I think what you do with Silk and what you've been continuing to do, you know, what you did um, last year as a as a King uh, King Boston, then Embrace Boston artist and resident, and bringing Silk to the to the festival last year was incredible, man. And, and it's essential. Mm-hmm. It's essential. Oh, I agree with that. I appreciate that too. Like that's for real. That's that's such a quote. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up and I'm gonna sit with that too. I'm gonna recycle that in my next joint. So it's in the it's in the. <laughs> remember this? Okay, you remember you remember the movie, right? 
I I've seen it. I don't. I'm terrible with movies. Like so, this this is this is a scene where she's running away, um, and she gets kidnapped, and she just she finds herself in his lair, like, and he at one time he's like inside there and he's dancing and having a good time or whatever, and she sees him dancing by himself, and then that's when she kicks when he kicks the line. He's like, "Why are you dancing?" She's like. You know, a revolution without dance is not a revolution worth having. Mm-hmm. And it's true. You think about that. Like, we need that. That we, I need to come out to commune with other people so I can build up that energy to be able to go back and try to create the world that we need. And part of the world that we need is a space where, 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 where everyone um, can go and feel whole and, yeah. and enjoy themselves and, and bring joy. Like, and exchange ideas, exchange energy. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you know, I always say that some of my, my most of my good friends came from me interacting with them around the arts. Most of my my relationships that I care about the most came from that. I because that's how I intersected with people was around the arts. So, we we I talked about it briefly. We talked about um, Silk, and one of the things you did during with Silk is you brought Silk outside at the festival. So um, at the Embrace Ideas Festival last year, kind of talk about what that was like for you, because I know that was kind of the first time you kind of brought it out into out into as a live event type thing. Yeah, um, it was different. It was different. It was it was different to be doing silk when the when outside for one, but in the daylight, I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> oh, but the lights went down. That was dope. Uh, we had nightcap. Um, but I think. For me, when I created Silk, it was not only to create a space for consumers and people of the city to come sing and be themselves and enjoy and learn new music and, you know, be nostalgic and hear the old joints, but also a place where the R&B artists from the city, from the region can use that as an opportunity to catapult their brand, catapult their music. Um, to the people who, you know, attend Silk. So that was always important for me for off rep, you know, as a person who made music in the past, who was a Boston-based artist, a local artist. Like, I understand that plight of, like, getting your music heard or getting your music seen in front of people. Uh, So that was important for me with Silk. Mm. And I think, you know, when we talked about doing the Embrace Festival outside, you know, that was clearly important for you and embrace as well. Like to be able to spotlight, you know, local artists, like it's cool. People know real P people know the silk brand. We want that there, but how can we spotlight um, artists? So it was an opportunity for me to reach back to uh, Miranda Ray. to my girl, Tori, Tori, my guy, notebook P uh, and invite them to take part into, you know, silk outside and, do a quick performance, you know, it wasn't too long, but it was a very, um, very intentional, very focused performance in terms of like, I wanted it to be, you know, these listeners may not know, but Gangsta Grill style. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be kind of like that DJ drama, you know, like I'm moving through records, but then a, a person's gonna come out and perform and then they gonna keep it moving and we doing more records and interacting with the crowd. So I wanted that kind of DJ drama mixtape feel with an artist, but R&B style. Uh, I think we somewhat accomplished it. You know, you gotta work out the kinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was 
well received. The people showed out. The festival itself was amazing. Uh, the silk set was amazing. The energy was dope. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, the boys I always love seeing people go from like singing Alicia Keys to the top of their lungs, feeling themselves to then, you know, doing the electric slide to Frankie Beverly, like that, like shift of emotion and energy is always like fascinating to me. Um, and I love that. Yeah. And and you did an incredible job. And I know this year we, we can announce this here in this conversation that you will be back with Silk again. I believe you're bringing um, baby Indiglo with you this time. You know what I mean? Bringing her along so she could do her thing on, on that stage as well. You know, I can't quite say who our headliner is yet, but you I know, know people. <laughs> but it's going it's gonna to be a good time. I can tell you some of the other people that's going to be on the bill. Um, our brother, our brother, Where's Nasty is coming through with uh, Who Could Kill the Dance Floor. We kind of expanded the concept of what we did last year as a, with people bringing their signature party. So Nasty's bringing Who Could Kill the Dance Floor. You're you're going to bring Silk. And then we have a new uh, uh, introduction into the fray, which is the brothers from Sound International are going to be debuting their party, Soka Cowboys. Yep. And then we have our, our headliner who I can't spill the beans on yet, but it's going to be a good time, man. And I, I'm super excited about you. about and, you those, and, those, and all those people you name, it's like they've all contributed to my musical journey, my musical palette over mm-hmm. the years. You know, me and Nasty early on, you know, playing Jovans together, playing Downtown Province, playing UMass Dartmouth together, you know, as college kids. Uh, Sound International, you know, always been like leaders in my eyes of like the dance hall soca world in Boston. Mm-hmm. Always, you know, attended their parties and watched them chat on the mic. You know, I'm learning all the new songs and the new patois and all them, you know, so like they've all contributed to the style of DJ I am now and kind of my hustle and how I interact with music and how I present it to other people to interact with. Yeah, I'm I'm looking I, I'm looking forward forward to it. Um and I know that it's gonna be a memorable, a memorable, memorable, memorable um day. You gotta tell slash you, gotta, night. you gotta tell Jay that for that day only he's not where's nasty. He has to go back to international nasty. Ooh national nasty again because that was his first dj name yes i remember i remember <laughs> listen i'm gonna let him know and he, I, I see you repping the brand right now for him so you know what i'm saying always always absolutely so listen this has been an incredible opportunity to to, to talk to you man i can't yeah, we wait didn't, we didn't even talk about fn but you know i know we started off talking about fn we, we got <laughs> that so that just means we had to do a part two and maybe we'll do a reunion we'll do an fn reunion we'll bring y'all all back together onto the pod and we'll have a conversation about that <laughs> because that was a that truly was a movement and that's like i said that's where i got the the nickname for you as the rizza because every time i saw y'all it was a, a it was a million of y'all and everybody could wrap their face off like i i was like yo howard how how is it 20 of y'all? And I and I remember you used to crack me up because I used to ask you, like, yo, how many people are in the group? And you'd be like, it's like 
<laughs> it flashed like 10 hands. Like, like yo, wait, 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 wait. No, I mean, because if you talk about artists, then I don't know. It's more, it's a lot. If you talk about cats that just do things, because a lot of cats do different things. So, yeah, those were good yeah. times, man. But the, listen, but you you did something that most people can't do is that you got a record ringing. And that is not the easiest move in the world, particularly in this town. So, you know, you've you've been doing incredible things for a long time, brother. I'm happy to count you amongst the Embrace Boston uh, artists and residents. You did you were great in our film and you're continuing to do great things. You got the only party that that politicians in the city feel like comfortable coming to. They don't feel like they're going to end up on the front page of the newspaper. Talk about you it. know what I'm saying? <laughs> you do it. You doing something right over there, man. So oh, I appreciate God. you, brother. And we, I, I, I can't to wait to get, get that state. I'm trying to get the mayor and governor there next, man. So so tell them come through, get a section. <laughs> <laughs> listen, if we listen, I don't know if the mayor could pull that off. I don't know if she could pop bottles inside and get them. Trust me, uh-uh. But the mayor, the governor might. She might pull up. She might. <laughs> oh, man. Yo, thank you so much, man, for, for taking the time to have this conversation with me. Uh, folks, that is it. Um, my name is G. Valentino Ball, and this has been the latest episode of Good Trouble, man. I hope you, you were able to learn something special from our, our guest, Real P. And we will talk to you again very, very soon. Peace.